me as an individual in an emergency department and my knowledge is not the limiting factor. So if I am 10% more knowledgeable or 10% more efficient or make 10% better decisions, the emergency department isn't going to operate 10% better. But if I can may have 2% more knowledge, make 2% better uh, decisions, 2% more efficient, but somehow I can have each individual or set the environment for each individual to operate at 2 to 5% better capacity, the whole department will function at 100% better. Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing what it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Felix Enkel, a board-certified emergency physician based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Formerly a residency program director, he's currently a self-described clinical educator who tries to integrate educational innovation with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's quadruple aim, which brings together quality, experience, stewardship, and joy at work. In our conversation this episode, we dig into the importance of building cultures and institutional structures designed to maximize the chances for individuals and teams to succeed. We also get into reductionist versus synthetic knowledge and talk a little bit about identifying story arcs present in normally unpredictable resuscitation. Unfortunately, there are a couple of minor issues with the audio in this episode, but the conversation is deep and definitely worth getting through an occasional Darth Vader sound in the background. Before we get started with the episode, one reminder, if you like what you're hearing here, consider signing up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free, it's awesome, and it's chock full of a lot of deep dives into some of the concepts we go into in these podcasts, as well as access to other articles we're putting together and occasionally discounts on some really interesting stuff related to performance under pressure. If that sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, all that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, well, Felix, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's absolutely awesome to get to sit here and, and talk with you about this. I've been looking forward to it, and, and thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So we were talking a little bit yesterday, sort of setting up for this, about, about some of the arc of your career, uh, which has been a really interesting mix of sort of influences. And I wonder, I wonder if you can take us back in time a little bit to when you first started doing um, emergency medicine, either either as a medical student or or a brand new intern or whatever it was. What is, what was that like? What got you into emergency medicine to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I would say I was uh, exposed late uh, to emergency medicine medical school. I was going to go to anesthesia. I was really interested in critical care medicine, and I heard about this new specialty, emergency medicine, and our, uh, the medical school I went to didn't have an emergency medicine residency, and it was suggested that I uh, take away a little, uh, rotation. So I actually canceled my fourth year anesthesia sub-internship and, choose, uh, and, and, and did an emergency medicine uh, rotation in Pittsburgh that had a a, uh, a residency and had a fairly strong department. And I think my uh, first experience was one of awe and excitement. They had a, a very strong pre-hospital and participatory pre-hospital program. 
I did now in retrospect, I didn't know what the feeling was based on, but I, I, I think at that point I appreciated their relationship to knowledge, you know, that knowledge was maybe not solely in the domain of the individual, but as a, in the group and that it was a, a shared process. Um, Similar, I, I think the whole issue of professional identity is so interesting when you're forming it in medical school. It seems very binary. You're either a physician or not a physician, a surgeon, not a physician. There, um, it almost seemed like a quantum identity. You're both a particle and a waveform that <laughs> you would be, you know, working along paramedics in the, in the streets or uh, it was a very team-oriented uh, approach to resuscitation with nursing and, and other members of the department. Then ultimately, it was also, uh, you know, I went to a fairly traditional sort of hierarchical medical school. And that, uh, the environment was more networked than hierarchical. So I, I think what I felt that took years for me to put my hands on was, was really those three elements. It was the way it approached knowledge and identity and structure was different than anything I had before. Wow, that's such an interesting way to dive into that. And there's so many things I want to press on in there, but but let's let's start with the one of the very first things you said, which is that you liked their relationship to knowledge. What what does that mean? What is what is a how does a team how does a a group have a particular relationship to knowledge? My parents were academics, uh, and so there was always really a analytic focus to knowledge. If you uh, look at a question and you break it down in small parts and you know everything about that small part and you put it back together, then you're an expert. And that is probably the ultimate in value. Um, I think that can be limiting because I, I think there is a, a certain inherent bias towards certainty on that. Um, I think there's a Another way to really look towards knowledge, which is more of a synthetic way, is that you look at at disparate disciplines and see the connections, which it's it's more of a relational than a transactional kind of approach to knowledge. And um, I think it it increases actually the competencies of team if if you don't focus on individual expertise as much as sort of the synthetic wisdom. It's, it's probably more like a wisdom than a knowledge. And I view, you know, if you look, if you go from data to information to knowledge to wisdom as sort of this progression, um, it's, it's truly wisdom, which I, I view wisdom as sort of this shared space, shared with patients and shared with the community, shared with, with, with other uh, 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 members of the healthcare team. So I, that was, um, if my memory is correct, I, I think that's in retrospect, what I really appreciated was, it was, it was more of a, uh, collective or a group competence than an individual competence and knowledge. So you're saying while, while some teams or some approaches might be to, to deconstruct a procedure or a technique, and then really hyper-focus on the individual subcomponents of it. Another way to do it is to say, okay, well, we're going to put together the different abilities that everybody has and and synthesize them into into the the action as a whole. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, you put it very well. I, my personal belief is you can have competent individuals and incompetent teams, and you can have an occasional incompetent individual, but you can have a competent team because the, the, the rest of the team kind of adjusts to that. And I think that's based on more of a synthetic model than an mm. analytic model. So it's more of an outward-facing rather than inward-facing kind of model. How do you feel that? What does that feel like in a room, right? So, so you're running a resuscitation and you have your other team members with you and your nurses and your doctors and your techs. And, and you say, hey, guys, we're going to try to build a resuscitation plan that's more of a synthetic model today as opposed to, a, I guess, the opposite would be more like a reductionist model, right? Like, like what does that actually logistically equal? It probably equals if there is sort of this cognitive or emotional trigger that something isn't the way you would see it i think it moves from the wow that must be wrong how can i help them see the right to this why are they doing it this way <laughs> uh so it's it's um you know there's times you just have to say you know you got to do it this way uh but i think there's many opportunities uh, that we miss in in highly hierarchical kind of situations where uh, of sort of system learning. Hmm. All right, we got to take a step back here because it's like two minutes into the podcast and we've wandered into this incredibly in-depth discussion about sort of the difference between synthetic and reductionist logic as it comes into an emergency resuscitation, which is awesome and we're going to stay with it. But I want to I want to step a little bit back and provide some context here. So so when you're running a resuscitation, um, or let me put it this way, resuscitation is unambiguously a team based sport. We are all in it together. We have a team and the ability of any one doctor, nurse, whoever, to provide care for the patient is intimately linked to the ability of everybody else to perform their job. And so you really are, are your ability to resuscitate is like an emergent property of your team. Right. Um, and the best teams feel that and see that and act accordingly to it. And I, and I think what we're sort of approaching here is this idea of consciously picking the way that your team is going to respond to situations like this, and that there are, in fact, different models out there for how teams do it. So let's take this approach. So when you were um, really junior in your career, when you were an intern, when you were just starting maybe even to run your first couple resuscitations, how conscious were you of that? How conscious were you of the fact that you had to pick the way that your team acts consciously? Not at all. Hmm. I think it was a, I think at a very egocentric approach to resuscitation rather than the ecocentric is, is that I had a, already a goal and a frame in my mind, and everyone else in the room were, were tools to create that goal. And, mm. and usually from resuscitation is, is, is to get return of, of spontaneous circulation or, or, the, um, uh, or if sort of a... Uh, someone that had a very low blood pressure was to get a higher blood pressure. Um, uh, it, it and even I think as a junior attending, it was uh, was very inward focus 
I was responsible for the patient. This was my patient. These were my team members. These were the residents under my supervision. So it, 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 and I felt like, you know, I don't know if I suffered from high self-esteem, but I felt like in general, I knew what was, uh, was to be done and I needed to make sure other people were doing it. What first made you think that maybe there would be other ways to run that? Looking at others, I would say mentors and, and, and leaders that almost operated in sort of a script discordance to that, that would act differently. Um, like, and so I work with a surgeon who, who, again, I had over the years formed probably my own internal biases or prejudices about how, how behaviors should, should happen in a, a trauma activation. And I noticed uh, a fairly senior surgeon that was well-respected that that was able to have a reflective component to the trauma resuscitation was not always a directive component. And that was fascinating to me saying that, how does asking people for their opinion help anything (laughs) during a resuscitation? How is being open to other ways of performing procedures? um, How is that helpful? You need to direct the team, make sure there's cohesion, eliminate errors, do that. That's how I probably was wired for a very long time. Can we expound on that a little bit? So you're saying that, that there's two approaches here. There's a directive approach versus more of a reflective approach. It sounds like one is more of, as you were saying, the egocentric, this is my team, this is my goal, this is how we're going to run it. And the reflective approach is more of trying to tap in and harness the wisdom of the room and say, hey, collectively, we're here together to accomplish this goal. Um, Am I saying that right? Yeah, I mean, the other, uh, yeah, I think there's this whole concept of of reflection in action, reflection on action. You know, typically we have a process and then we reflect, which is sort of, you know, swung the bat, missed the ball, you should have swung higher, something like that, and the learning. I, I think some of the best clinicians and 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 leaders can actually reflect inaction and can can switch sort of the swing of the bat while they're swinging it. Um, and and I think part of that is it, it's it's almost an out of body uh, experience where you're you're present in the resuscitation and the outcome, but you're also looking at yourself and your team saying, hmm, well, we put in the chest tube and all the pressure's dropping. <laughs> what now? Uh, and if all of a sudden someone else is saying, well, you know, did we look at the chest x-ray right? Or rather than saying, of course, we put in the chest tube on the right side, saying, well, why would they ask that? Uh, I think is a is certainly a, a skill that I tr- I I try to aspire to. You grew up with this one model of doing it, and then you got introduced to people that did it very differently, and and started thinking, oh, that's fascinating. Why? How does that work? 
And what was the next step in there? Did you did you start experimenting in your own cases with it? Did you sit down and do sort of what we're doing and interview people that have that have have more experience or what came next? I don't think it's ever been formal and I don't think I've ever um, discussed it in a formal way. I think there's a there's a book called the reflect. Uh, I think it's the reflective practitioner. Uh, so I'm a little geeky in terms of the theory of it all. And, and usually it's almost like I, when I read some of these theories that kind of speak to me, I'm like, oh, that's what it was. And so I don't think I've really dove into it other than knowing that me as an individual in an emergency department and my knowledge is not the limiting factor. So if I am 10% more knowledgeable or 10% more efficient or make 10% better decisions, the emergency department isn't going to operate 10% better. But if I can have 2% more knowledge, make 2% better uh, decisions, 2% more efficient, but somehow I can have each individual or set the environment for each individual to operate at two to five percent better capacity the whole department will function at a hundred percent better it's not just self-improvement but it's improvement within context it's improving the system and, and and instead of individually making your ship better your job is to create a tide that raises everything functionally felix what does that what does that look like on shift for you I mean, how, how much of this, and you, I guess I guess this goes back to this idea of reflecting on action afterwards versus reflecting in action, but when you're on a, how, how much of this idea of getting 2% better is something you do on shift, or is this in your off shift time, you're trying to change the system? So good question. I mean, I'm just reflecting. I worked yesterday and I worked last Friday. So we have a residency in St. Paul uh, regions, and I, I try to always frame the shift with the residents and, mm. and saying, you know, what are your goals? What do you want to do? Um, as a marker, when when things get really stressful or busy, we can focus on that. I think our department is a very integrated department, and you know we started patient safety rounds once once a shift at the beginning, mm. and it started out with pretty much who's you know who's at a risk of a fall. But actually, those rounds have now uh evolved where it's really what are the expectations for the shift for everyone and they're now not once a shift or once every couple hours and all that so it's it's i think it helps with cadence um and you know it's interesting to me stress is what you can't control and what you can't predict and in the ed i think if one of your goals is to control have a short short career in, in, <laughs> in emergency medicine, which leaves sort of what you can predict and doing some effort in terms of what you can predict will happen will probably decrease some of the, the stressor. As an example of, of what I do, and I don't know if it works or not, uh, I think on Friday I was working on a shift. It's, it's in our, in our uh, uh, less acute shift with uh, uh, without residents, so it's really you and a few nurses. Um, 
And so there you actually can be the uh, it may be that you're the limiter of that based on what decisions you make, how fast you are. And I, I think a couple people were were talking about how tired they are of COVID, which I agree. <laughs> and the fact that they're on the third or fourth of 12 hour shifts uh, and and they're ready to be over. And this was before our first patient ever, mm. ever started it. And so you can kind of predict that this is this may be an interesting next eight hours. And so as an interest, uh, I kind of engaged and I said, hey, you, you know, I got a new Peloton, you know, these little meditation apps. I want to use one. What do you think? We're like, all right, whatever. And so all it was is a five minute sort of uh, either a gra- it was a five minute gratitude meditation that I put on my iPhone and the three or four other people that uh, were not looking, in my mind, and the same probably here, weren't looking to the next eight hours, uh, it, it kind of changed the frame of the mindset. It changed my mm. mindset because I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> but after that, I was like, we'll do it. So I do think you can do little micro-interventions uh, to set a tone that ultimately, I think, does decrease stress and improve decisions. So let's weave these things together, right? So we have the idea of reflection in action. So you you say, hey, there's a, um, a current here, an energy, whatever. I, I have to say there's an energy because I live in California and that's how we talk about things, right? But there's a current here that that feels to me like it's going in a direction that I'm not I'm not loving and I can I can't control everything but I can predict if we do nothing it's going to point us in a direction that's maybe a little bit suboptimal. So I'm going to step forward and do one of these micro interventions and and sort of try to calm the team a little bit. That's one thing to do when you are the physician leader of a team, when you're the boss and you're sort of in head of it and everybody else is around you. What do you do if you're feeling that same sort of current? You feel you predict something's not going to quite go right, but you're you're not necessarily the head leader of the team or the head leader of the resuscitation. How do you how do you lead that sort of micro intervention from below? So that is a a great question because uh, and I've counseled some of our residents on that. I mean, I'm one of the more senior people in our department. I've had various leadership positions, come from from privilege. And so if I say, hey, let's do this, uh, let's do this five minute uh, <laughs> thing on Peloton, I think people in general probably will say yes. Uh, one of the things I work with with our residents is this whole concept of boundary management. You know, I always say that, you know, have you heard of Doctors Without Borders? Yes, we, I have. Okay. Have you heard about doctors without boundaries? No, because it doesn't exist. But I, I think we actually don't, we don't train enough about boundaries. You know, if it were up to me, again, I think we are mandated to have ACLS, which is our advanced cardiac life support and advanced trauma life support. I would love to have an advanced boundary life support uh class for members in, in, in emergency medicine. And part of that is is how to deal with the inherent sort of biases and prejudices and microaggressions that happen in an emergency department of that. How I work with the residents, I, I talk to them, first of all, to identify their triggers, to either have a boundary management system saying this is not right, or to have them have an ally 
or a bystander training of others how to do that. And so if, let's say, a resident is overwhelmed, the staff is overwhelmed, people are laying in sort of on the resident because things, the department is too much under stress, how can a resident who may not be in the top of a hierarchy kind of set a tone? I think at, at times I, I do tell residents it's going to be your responsibility to speak up, whether it's scripting of, you know, I just wanted to make sure I hear what you're trying to say because I think the message I received may not be the message you, you know, you're trying to send and all that. I don't think we actually do a lot of that in training terms of how you as an individual can set set the tone for high performance but i think it's about language it's about setting boundaries in my mind that's really interesting because it, it strikes me that there's a couple of different sort of ways that that we can do these micro interventions right and the goal of all of this is to is to you know as much as possible address the controllable parts of our mind and our physiology in order to perform better under pressure, both individually and as a team. And the idea of these micro-interventions is that we're sort of steering ourselves back, steering our whole team back towards the directions that we want to go. Um, so, so there's one thing, which is the, the category of those that we can do if we're the leader of the team. And there's one, which is the category we can do of, hey, we're not the leader, but we still see it and we want to try to bend the arc. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's a third piece, which is um, things we can do in either of those positions to empower everyone else around us to make those same interventions. And and I wonder if we could talk about that for a little bit, because, you know, in that triad you put out at the beginning, knowledge, identity, and structure, like like this is maybe the structure component, right? This is This is the overall culture of a place, which is so intimately tied to the ability of its teams to function. So you mentioned a little bit about that, right? Talking like individually stepping up and and being a, a witness and a by and a positive bystander um, and encouraging your team through your actions. But how else do you build a culture that that tries to address this proactively? Yeah, great question. And again, I would not consider myself a culture expert. I can tell you, I was a residency director for. Uh, many years and the sort of things that I would do to influence culture. And it, it ultimately define, it depends on what the definition of culture is. And, and for me, Parker Palmer is sort of this, this educator guru. And it was interesting, I think, and I hope I'm not misattributing this quote, you know, in general, culture is what is real and what has power. And so let's say in our country, maybe till very recently, what is real is, is science and what has power is money. But in some cultures, what is, is, is real is, let's say, faith and what has power is how old you are, the elderly and everything like that. But, but in general, culture is, uh, so I view for me, what is uh, culture is what is real and what is, uh, has power and then I view it's demonstrated by language, artifacts, and celebrations. And, and I, I do agree with you is an investment in sort of the structure and the environment is often much, has a higher ROI than 
than than some of the individual trainings and all that. So so I do look for language and I do look at phrases and when I was in a in a residency director position is how things were phrased, what are the words we use. And then the artifacts are sort of interesting. In a lot of training program, artifacts are sort of awards. So what are you actually awarding? And so when I came on, I'm like, well, we, we talk about humanism, but we're not a, it's not as part of our award. So uh, I, we had a residency humanism award named after the most humanistic uh, sort of faculty member. And all those awards were in the hallway that that not only emergency physicians, but the rest of the hospital walked by all the time. So you saw here's a humanism award, here's we had an advocacy award, a nurse educator award, all that. But that was artifacts of what were important to us. And then the celebrations are often, uh, from my perspective of, of, of a residency director's graduations or how do we do residency picnics or how does our department do the holiday picnics how inclusive are we you know if there's going to be skits how do we portray others how do we portray patients and all that so being this learning uh you know whether you're learning choreography or a master architect and all that i i do think there's design elements that can help people perform at their best in emergency departments. Investing in culture is investing in performance and investing in structure is investing in performance. And, and it circles back to that idea you were saying about your job, whether you're a team leader or a team participant or whatever, is to make you and everybody else one to 2% better today. Like you're saying, the artifacts and, and the things that we do to show what it is that we truly value, right? Like I think that we can as leaders say, we value continuing improvement, we value growth. We, and then implicit in that is the idea that we are not finished products, that we're still learners and evolving people, um, and that we can do things that encourage encourage people to do that. I guess I never really thought of those as micro-interventions, but they, but they probably are. When you're doing things like that, when you're either subtly changing the artifacts of your culture or doing these micro-interventions, do you, do you call it out? Do you say this out loud? Like, hey guys, we're going to do a micro-intervention to change our tone, or do you just sort of subtly you know, play a Peloton app in the background. I probably don't even give it that much thought when it happens. You know, hmm. uh, I think it's just reflecting on, hey, this shift really went well. And who would have known if I did the Peloton app on meditation and we didn't do it, it probably would have been a well shot. I mean, we have a, incredible nurses and the, the people I was working with. I was actually feeling kind of the same thing. I was like, well, I'm done with COVID. I'm done, you know, we had uh, a pod where it's sort of the hot zone. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm done with it. I mean, I think this is where we step up, but uh, I mean, getting in and out of PPE uh, 20 times in eight hours, uh, I, it, it's just a different thing. And so doing that, it, it did kind of sh- change the tone, but I don't think I was going to, to, oh, this is a thing I should do right now. Um, I think when you're in formal positions, so when I'm in formal leadership positions and have a formal team, I think uh, consciously on culture a lot more. I think when it's it's I'm part of a team, I would say it's it's more uh, being present enough to do something. Uh, 
in a more informal way. I get hives sometimes when there's a forceful sort of, we're going to change culture and this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly there's certainly a balance there between wanting to subtly bend the arc of where the team is going and also be part of the team at the same time, um, which I think is what makes that uh, a really, really excellent and worthwhile challenge. Um, because I do think that with different um, culture and with a more open, maybe this goes back to directive versus reflective, but with a more open mindset, I think that we can build teams that are better at resuscitation and better at taking care of our patients and also better at identifying what's like really needed and addressing that as opposed to just whatever's on the surface level of things. And I think that's part of our challenge as emergency practitioners is to do that, you know, while somebody is bleeding profusely on top of us and, and that balance of, yeah, we're going to, we're going to change the culture, but also we're going to, you know, tamponade the wound is like, is like very, very real, <laughs> uh, very yeah. visceral. You know, I, I wonder if we can change gears slightly. There's something that you said uh, yesterday as we were setting up for this that I've been thinking about. And we, we talked a little bit about it today, but it's the difference between control and prediction and the idea that you cannot control everything or honestly even most things in an emergency, but you can try to predict what's going to happen both for you, the patient, and your team. And it, you said this yesterday, and I've been thinking about it since. I was thinking about it as I was... Uh, surfing this morning and getting absolutely trounced by the waves. But but what part of our performance under stress or pressure, what parts of that do you think we can predict? And what parts are just really not possible to predict? And I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll add on to that slightly, which is how can you predict when people and systems are going to crumble and fail? Yeah, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, this whole concept of a story, you know, if I think there's a great study where they looked at all the stories, uh, 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 you know, or 10,000 stories over centuries, and they have, you know, sort of seven predictable arcs, mm -hmm. you know, even though stories are completely different. I think resuscitations, uh, in general, uh, there is an arc. You know, that there is an intensity uh, and a criticality. And then there's usually things get better. They stay the same or they get worse. You know, and then you can do, you know, certain, uh, you, there's usually an intervention. Then there's usually, let's say if it's an airway in intervention, there's usually this, this period of time that you hope that the person, let's say his blood pressure is going to, stay after an induction or a, a, a paralyzation. But I, I, I do think there is probably a set of 10 or 15 arcs from resuscitation that cover 95% of resuscitations. Hmm. And so uh, I think we can train people in that to recognize those arcs. Uh, so one of the metaphors I use with our residents is actually being a resuscitologist is like being a a DJ, you're not really only listening to the record. You're figuring out what record to play when the music stops. Mm. You know, you're figuring the, the next step. Um, as a total aside, it, it, 
it's interesting. So I'm writing a series on the future for or, or helping write a series on the future of medical education. So it kind of looked at people that are professionals in in sort of future thinking. So there's uh, there's actually an association of professional futurists, which I never knew existed. And and uh, there's a six step process. And five of the steps I'm very uh, familiar with. It's probably part strategic planning and, 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 you know, SWOT analysis and all that. But there is one discipline is it's actually calling futuring. And what it is is it's identifying hard trends. These are things that are going to change. And then separating out of those soft trends, these are things that may change. And then really going back and looking if these three if these are hard trends that are going to change what is it going to change to and i i think that's more on a macro sort of scale but i think you can do it on a micro scale you know these are things that are going to change this person will never walk out of the emergency department or out of the hospital this is a hard trend but these are things that may change the blood pressure may get better we may be able to do this and I don't think we do talk enough about predictive sort of analytics in the emergency department. Uh, and I think sometimes we're stuck on these wicked problems where we're, these are unfixable problems at the time. And, and we're trying to go towards it from different angles rather than seeing what is actually going to happen. So resuscitation, a, a cardiac arrest is a sometimes a wicked problem and that it's hard and it's maybe unknowable and there's a billion variables, but from that or within that, can you find um, an arc, uh, a heuristic, a mental model that captures a lot of the variability and enough of the variability that you can work with it and predict a little bit what's going to happen next? I think so. It's actually having a lot of mental models. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, one of the people I follow is Shane Parrish. At, Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, so when we're on shift, we talk a lot about the 80-20 rule or, or, mm -hmm. or thing, you know, the, you know, we know for sure the patient's not going to be in the emergency department for the next 24 hours. So that means they need to be going somewhere. And what do we need to do before they go somewhere? And I mean, a lot of times we're like, oh boy, I got the airway in. Oh boy, I was able to get the IV in. And okay, we went from peripheral pressors to central pressors. And now the pressure is 80. And I'm like, okay, now what? You know, cool, not cool, and everything. It's, I think there's an opportunity for us as a specialty doing resuscitations is kind of still doing a little bit of step back. You know, what do we do after the resuscitation? I've always viewed it as sort of like a, an oceanscape of uncertainty in the middle of which are these little islands of high probability things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're sort of charting a course among these things and you're saying, OK, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm lost in this ocean. But I understand, generally speaking, after I intubate the person, their blood pressure is going to go down. So I'm going to prepare for that because we're probably somewhere, even if I don't know exactly where we are on the map, I know we're somewhere near this island where I can generally understand how things work. And, and you know, running a code is sort of threading your way through these different islands. Um, Metaphor breaks down a little bit, but but I think that idea of like finding pockets of high probability within a vast sort of uncertainty um, is a really powerful one. And that's where heuristics are probably more useful in some sense in, in those individual places. Two more questions for you. Mindful, okay. mindful of time here. Okay. 
Um, you talked about education. Uh, a question I've been asking people lately, if you had the opportunity to build from the ground up a school that would train people on how to perform under pressure, what would be in that school? Oh, it's a great question. Um, some sort of a of an awareness type of curriculum, I would say, or a discipline. Uh, and part of it is more than just the head and the heart. I work with a health system where when we talk about the head and the heart, you really need to know the cognitive part and you need to know the emotional. Uh, I think there's a skeleton and a skin part of it too, is to really understand structure and, and both the benefits and the limitations of certain structures. And let's say, how does an organization work compared to a community, compared to a platform? How does a movement work and all that? And so it's, it's, it's an awareness of oneself and an awareness of oneself in the relation to one's environment. Part of that is, is a really maximizing a reflective practice, you know, whether it's journaling, whether it's psychoanalysis, whether it's prayer. I mean, they're all sort of embedded reflective practice. Uh, I would probably also um, certainly continue to have sort of this analytic approach to knowledge, but to have a... Uh, synthetic approach. Uh, there's some great work. John Moravec does this. It's called the Nomad Society, which is K-N-O-W-M-A-D, and talks about nomads are really uh, people that go from one discipline to another and start feeling pretty comfortable in multiple disciplines. And I would, I would use that as sort of an arch, a fundamental infrastructure, and have that first part the first couple years really be on those disciplines before the subspecialization. Yeah, sign me up. I would go to that school. <laughs> that sounds excellent. Um, and uh, my my last thought as we're coming to a close here is 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 what uh, what challenge do you have for people? What do you want to leave people with when they're walking away from this? What should they try to do? I probably, and it's based on what has helped me the most, is I would challenge people to have a reflective practice and double challenge feels like I don't have time for reflective practice is, is to carve out at least a minimum of 30 minutes a week to figure out some kind of reflective practice to, to reflect on oneself and the environment and time. So that would be my challenge. Awesome. Felix, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. I have tons to think about and tons to dig into. Thank you. It's, uh, Dan, it's been, a, it's, it's, it's been an honor. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.